Well, the book of Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and with the God, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Well, we live in a world that is full of conflict, strife, and hostility. Just this February, Russia attacked Ukraine. And while that took the news, it was not and is not the only major conflict in the world today. Ethiopia, Sudan, Yemen, Syria, and many other countries are currently in the midst of wars. It's not just international problems, though, for within this last year we saw domestic hatred. About two months ago, a man entered Nancy Pelosi's home and attacked her husband and was looking for her, trying to harm or even kill her. This summer, a man was arrested near Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home and charged with attempted murder. It's not just people of the opposite party, though. In 2020, when Vice President Mike Pence said he would certify the results of the 2020 election, people who voted for him and Trump chanted, Hang Mike Pence. And it's not just international, it's not just national politics. May 21st in our own state, a man went in to the school in Uvalde, Texas, and killed over 20 people. It's not just international, it's not just national, it's not just state. Even in our own homes, there's not always peace. There's arguments, raised voices, snarky, sarcastic, biting comments. And yet, it's not just international. It's not just national, it's not just state, it's not just our homes, it's also inside us. There's things inside us that wage war. I was talking to a friend out at the soccer fields recently, and he was mentioning how sometimes he gets really angry, and he then said, I really hate that part of myself. And I resonated, maybe you feel that, maybe there's things in your life that you go, I hate that part of me. And there's like a war going inside of us, part of us craves new possessions and yet a part of us keeps telling us just be content i'm fine part of you really wants to lay into that person for what they just did and another part of you says no i need to forgive part of you wants to eat drink or watch more than you should or something you shouldn't and yet another part warns you know you'll hate it afterwards and there's conflict even inside us and into this world of conflict jesus comes and what did the angels declare they said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace 
among whom he's pleased. Do you know peace? You know, how does Jesus even bring peace? What is the conflict that's going on? Well, that's what Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 is showing us. If you have a bulletin on the back, I've laid this out in three sections. First, in the first two verses, 11 and 12, we're going to see the conflict that exists in their situation. Then verses 13 through 15, how Christ has brought us near. And 16 through 18, how Christ has reconciled us. Well, verse 11 begins, Therefore, and as a good Bible reader, you know that when you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? Well, it's an implication of verses 1 through 10. So a quick summary, you may remember, in verses 1 through 10, Paul laid out our condition that due to our sin, we are all dead before God. That we are all walking in sin against God. And that wasn't to moan and groan about how bad we are, but it was to rejoice in God's amazing grace that reached out and saved us and made us alive in Christ. Thus, Jesus broke, fixed sorry, our broken relationship with God. And because Jesus fixed our broken relationship with God, therefore, verse 11, He can fix our broken relationships with one another. So how we resolve our personal our interpersonal, our international conflicts can be and one day ultimately will be resolved in the cross of Christ. I say ultimately because we shouldn't be naive to think, well, if everyone just became a Christian, then all the conflicts would go away. Well, that's clearly not true. You may remember 2020 was the year in which polarization in our country seemed to hit a fever pitch. George Floyd and the race issues the election with Donald Trump in it, COVID and all the opinions with masks and shutdowns and all these things. And people didn't just disagree. They called each other names. They got violent. Former friends and family members wouldn't even talk to each other anymore. And tragically, it wasn't just out there in the culture. Within the church in the U.S., these conflicts existed. There is conflict deep bitter conflict in this world. So what is the solution? Well, we'll get there, but we need to realize the problem here in Ephesians. And to explain this, he says in verse 11, Gentiles, remember your condition before Christ came. Now, a Gentile is a descriptor, like I'm an American or I'm a male. But for the Jews, Gentile came to be a curse word almost, a slang. You're a Gentile. They derisively used it. And they also called them, we see in there, the uncircumcised. Well, what's that about? Well, in Genesis 17, God made a covenant to Abraham and then the people of Israel. And the sign and seal of that covenant was the males should be circumcised. It was supposed to be a sign showing that they were not holy. That they needed something to come and make them clean. Not just externally, but it pointed to an internal reality. That's why it says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Except the Jews did not remember that the external circumcision pointed to an internal need. They saw circumcision as a marker of their holiness. Not only was it their badge of holiness, but the Gentiles were the uncircumcised. And records show that a common prayer for a Jewish man at that time began, Thank you, God, that I am not 
a Gentile. The animosity between Jew and Gentile was so great that Gentile midwives were not allowed, sorry, Gentile midwives were allowed to help a Jewish woman give birth, but Jewish midwives were not allowed to help a Gentile woman give birth. Well, why? Because you wouldn't want to help another Gentile come into this world. Some rabbis taught that the Gentiles were created only to be fuel for the fires of hell. If a Jewish child married a Gentile, the parents didn't attend the wedding, they attended a funeral for their child instead. The only hope they saw for Gentiles was to disavow being a Gentile, become circumcised, and follow all the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. And yet now, in the same rooms, are Jew and Gentile worshiping the risen Savior, Jesus. How in the world are they going to get along? How are they going to be at peace with one another? How can these years, these centuries of hatred be overcome? Well, Paul begins to show how by subtly rebuking the Jews, by talking about their circumcision being done by hands. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know by hands is a term for man-made religion. He's trying to remind them, remember the Old Testament said circumcision needed to ultimately be done by God. And you're boasting about a circumcision made by men. You need to remember what it's all about. Paul just hints at that problem now, and he continues to show the alienation between Jew and Gentiles before Jesus came. Because before Jesus, the Gentiles were alienated, he says in verse 12, from the civic life or the commonwealth of Israel. Now it's important to realize that while the Jews wrongly thought of faith being exclusively for them, they were correct that the being Jewish was important. Even Jesus, when he's talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, he says, salvation is of the Jews. Well, why is this the case? Well, because God gave promises to Abraham and to Israel, and though we are recipients of those promises, they were first made to them. They were made to Abraham and his seed. Thus, Psalm 147 says, He declares his word to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Thus, the Gentiles were not only strangers, but without promises from God, they were without hope and without God in the world. In other words, they were outsiders and alienated. Have you ever felt like an outsider? You walk in the room and you palpably feel that everyone in there doesn't want you. Their silence, their body language, their stares speak volumes. Do you feel like people would prefer your absence more than your presence? You so desperately want that group of people to like you, and yet they seem to prefer you not being there. And you might be thinking, man, what a start to a sermon. Come to get picked up, come to hear about joy, peace, and we've just been going on and on about wars and conflict and well, why? Well, notice what Paul says twice in verses 11, 12. Therefore, remember, verse 12, remember. Sometimes it's good to remember the bad so we can appreciate the good. 
Yes, Satan wants us to remember the past, to rub our face in it, to say, I know what you did and you know what you did and these people would never love you. God would never love you. Satan uses the past to attack us. God uses the past to say, look, I know what you did too, but I forgive you. I know who you were and yet I loved you even while you were an enemy. And so use your past not for Satan to make you feel shame, but use your past to catapult you into joy that God loves and delights in you. That he knows your past and your present condition. But what is our present condition now? We turn to that in verses 13 through 15. Christ brought us near. The second point, Christ brought us near. If you've been with us for Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you'll remember that we emphasized over and over that verse 4 was a great contrast. It also painted a horrible condition. And then it said in verse 4, but God. There's no hope unless God had acted. Well, it's very similar right here. Verse 13, we're first given in verses 11 and 12, the bad condition. And then verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. What appeared to be a hopeless situation between the Jews and Gentiles has hope because of Jesus and what he has done. For through Jesus, the ones who were far off have been brought near. Now this is an allusion to Isaiah 57, 19. And Christ is saying that any believer, Jew or Gentile, is near God. Now we may feel near to someone when in fact they're plotting against us. We may feel far from someone when in fact they're caring for us. In the Old Testament, false prophets often declared to Israel, you're at peace. Whereas Jeremiah and the true prophets would say, these men are saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. I heard once of a Christian wife who became concerned that her husband was being unfaithful. She was horrified. She grew sadder and sadder and their relationship deteriorated. They eventually decided to go to marriage counseling. By the way, this is not one of those stories where it's like me and I'm just sharing. This is not me. Just to be clear. <laughs> so they go to marriage counseling. And when the counselor asks, so what seems to be the problem? She said, my husband's cheating on me. And the money keeps disappearing. The husband sighed. He pulled out his wallet and laid down a stack of big bills and says, honey, our anniversary is coming up. And I, <clears throat> sorry. And I was saving for a big present. You know, she felt that he is cheating on me. He hates me. But her feelings were wrong. He thought just taking a little over time, she wouldn't notice. And then he could do something wonderful for her. Don't base your relationship with God on how you feel. Base it on the facts. You know, many people say, oh, I feel near to God. But they don't trust in Christ then you are far from God. Many people say, oh, God's cold and distant. Well, no. If you trust in Christ, He has been brought near. So work and pray to let the facts of God, what He's done for you in Christ, determine the relationship that you have, the closeness of it. Here as the hold Him goes, so near, so very near to God, nearer I could not be, for in the person of His Son, I am as near as he. So in Christ, we are brought near. Now notice that that's a passive action. We're not doing it. It's not saying you're brought near because you're very sincere in your repentance. You're brought near because you're really strong in faith. Oh, you're brought near because of the depth of your conversion. 
Oh, you're brought near because you've had wonderful spiritual experiences or you've gone to church. Notice what it says in verse 13. You are brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, let's be clear. If the city of Nazareth had a blood drive and Jesus went in and they took his blood and then they put it under a microscope, Jesus' blood would have looked like everyone else's blood. Jesus was a human, 100%. His body was like our body. When it talks about his blood, it's symbolically referring to the shedding of his blood, his death. And Jesus shed blood makes sense as we understand the Old Testament sacrificial system or pictures like the 10th plague in Egypt. You may remember that 10th plague where God had time and again tried to allow Israel to go and sent warnings to Egypt with plagues. And on the 10th one, he said, let my people go or I will send a plague so that tonight every firstborn in the house will die. And yet there is hope. If you take the blood of the lamb and you spread it over the doorpost, the one who comes, the angel of the Lord who comes to bring death will pass over that house. That house will be spared and everyone in it because of the blood of the lamb. And so the Jews for centuries after that, celebrated the Passover to remember God passing over their house because of the blood of the Lamb. And then Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples, and yet he said something interesting at that meal. He took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. Jesus was saying, look, Remember that Passover lamb centuries before? That was pointing forward to me. I'm the lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. You see, God doesn't just overlook our sin. Go, ah, no big deal. I'm the type of person who forgives. No, God sees our sin. And like the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, if we trust in Christ, he sees not us, but the blood of the lamb of Christ. And so he passes over us and forgives us. 1 Peter 1 says it this way, You are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Thus, what does verse 14 say? It says, Thus he is our peace. The Prince of Peace came and he accomplished his mission by bringing peace. Now notice whose peace he is. Paul didn't say he's my peace, though he is. He said he's our peace. You know, there is an element where each one of us needs to individually believe and trust in Christ. And yet we must remember that there's a corporate idea of our faith. He is our peace. We have been joined to God through Christ. Now when we hear the word peace... The biblical idea of peace is much greater than what we think of. We think of it as a state of mind or you're no longer at conflict. But the biblical idea of peace refers to completeness or wholeness. It's life being returned to the way it should be. And Jesus is the one who will restore this entire world so that there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. More than that, so that we're restored to God. And as we're seeing now, that we're also restored to one another. 
And Paul makes this explicit in this verse by saying, Jesus made both, meaning Jew and Gentile, one. The two groups that hated each other, they are now one. Notice the vertical peace that Jesus accomplished with us, with God. That's what verses 1 through 10 are about. Lead to the therefore, 11 through 18, the horizontal peace that we should have with one another. You know, I should have peace with every brother and sister because we are one in Christ. Before God, it doesn't matter if I'm a Jew or a Gentile, if I'm a male or a female, or rich or poor, black or white. It's not that those realities cease to exist, but in regards to our salvation, they're irrelevant, for He has made us one. Have you ever heard of a grudel? I hadn't heard of it till this week. My friend Richie from uh, Missionary, who's come a couple times, mentioned it. A grudel is a golden retriever with a poodle. So they got a golden retriever, they made it with a poodle, and now they have a big dog with lots of energy, but curly, soft hair like a poodle. It's not a poodle. It's not a golden retriever. It's a grudel. In Christ, we're no longer Jew. We're no longer Gentile. We're now something new. We're something different. And how did Jesus do this? Tells us he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, there are metaphorical walls, but sometimes there are literal walls. And there was a literal wall in the temple, the Jewish temple, that separated the court of the Gentiles where they could go from the inner portion of the temple. So from the court of the Gentiles, the Gentiles could see the temple, but they were not allowed to go. And the Jews were so kind, they put welcome signs in Latin and Greek all around it. And these welcome signs said, let no Gentile, let no man of the nations go beyond this wall on pain of death. Now notice it didn't say, trespassers will be prosecuted, trespassers will be executed. And the Jews were deadly serious about this. You can read in Acts 21 about how the Jews thought Paul brought a Greek into the temple, that he broke this very rule. In Acts 21 and 28 and 29, they say, Men of Israel, help! This is the man, talking about Paul, who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple. And he's defiled this holy place. For they had previously, previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with them in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So these Jewish people think Paul brought someone into the temple who was a Gentile. And you know what they do next? They drive Paul out of the city and they're about to kill him, except that Roman soldiers come running in. And so as Paul writes to these Ephesians about the dividing wall of hostility, he knows exactly, they know exactly what they're talking about. This wall that separated them. But what does Paul say here? Jesus demolished the wall by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And we need to be clear Paul is not saying that Jesus removed the law. For he wrote, writes in Romans 3, God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, so here in Ephesians, he's saying Christ broke down the law of commandments. In Romans, he's saying he's upholding. What does he mean? Well, Paul's talking about two different aspects of the law. 
There's the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, and then there's the ceremonial or the civil law, the days in which you worship, the food that you can eat, the clothes you can wear. And Christ came and he destroyed the ceremonial law. That's why you can read in Mark 7, where it says, Jesus declared all food clean, so we don't follow the dietary restrictions anymore. And yet the disciples had a hard time with all of this. In Acts 10 11, we see how unwilling they are to believe this because God had to three times show the Apostle Peter a vision to go and eat this food that formerly had been unclean. Peter is then sent to a Gentile, and there the Gentile expresses faith, and Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know, Peter finally came to understand that in Christ, Jew and Gentile does not matter. And yet that's not the end of the situation, because though Peter now gets it, other Jewish believers don't. They end up having to have a council in Acts 15, declaring, look, you're saved by Christ alone. It's not all these other rules. It's not dietary restrictions. It's not circumcision. It's not the rest. And yet then, <coughs> Peter will lapse back into this in you read in Galatians 2, and Paul will even say in Colossians 2, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. So he's not saying they're bad, but they were a shadow. But the substance is here, Christ. Christ is the one who makes us clean. Christ is the one who makes us have peace with God. Not keeping dietary restrictions. Not being circumcised. Thus, in Christ, there is peace with God that should lead to peace with one another since we're one new humanity in Him. But you might still wrestle with him, but there's no way God would want me. If you knew what I have said and done, you would know God could never be at peace with me. Consider, though, Jesus' first words to his disciples after his resurrection. Now, remember, the last time Jesus saw his disciples was either seeing their backs as they fled, as he was arrested, or seeing their face as they'd betrayed him for the third time. Now, what would you say? Well, what do you say when you need help in the kitchen and no one comes? Or you're cleaning the house and everyone's sitting around? Well, it's something much worse than this. In light of betrayal and cowardice, these are Jesus' first words, Luke twenty four thirty six. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, I can't believe you all did it. He said, peace to you. you know, he is the prince of peace, and he knows every sin that you've committed. He knows every sin you will commit, and he offers you peace. And he knew what you would do, and he still died on the cross for those sins and offers peace to you. It's not because those sins don't matter. It does. Jesus had to die for those sins. So we must confess and turn from them. Yet because with his blood he paid for them, he is now our peace. And because of that, we see the third thing in verses 16 through 18. Christ reconciled us. And Jesus reconciled, tells us verse 16, both the Jew and Greek in one body, to God through the cross. And he did this 
by killing the hostility in himself. Well, what's this hostility? Well, the hostility is our sin and the punishment we deserve that leads with God being angry with us. <coughs> Thus, Colossians 2, 21-22, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body by his death. Now, reconciliation is needed when two things are not in harmony. Sometimes you've got to reconcile the books, accountants say. They're not, the expenditures and the money coming in are not equal. They've got to make it in harmony. Sometimes we've got to reconcile relationships. We're out of harmony with one another. Well, the reconciliation we need with God is not that we've both messed up. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to God. And by His grace and kindness, we're reconciled to Him by the death of His beloved Son. In Luke 7, a prostitute comes to Jesus while he's at an evening meal and she's weeping and she's crying at his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And the religious leaders, they look at the woman and they look at Jesus and they scorn and they think in their heads, if Jesus was really a righteous man, he'd never allow a woman like this to touch him. And yet Jesus then tells them a story about two people who are in debt and the people in debt are both forgiven. He asks the religious leaders, well, which person in debt is going to love the person who forgave them? And they reply, well, the one who is forgiven a larger debt. And Jesus' point is, the more we recognize our sin, and the more we recognize the forgiveness, the more we'll rejoice. And we won't look down on others, but then we'll rejoice that others are being brought near. You know, Jesus, after he said all this, he then looked at the woman, the one that all of them didn't want there, the one that was not in harmony with all those people, and he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. He knew all of what that woman was like, and he saw her faith in him. And because of that faith, she was saved and she could go in peace. This was not the only result or purpose of Jesus dying on the cross but this is also the way jesus lived it tells us in verse 17 he preached peace to those who were far and to those who were near he preached peace to the ones who were near the jews and the ones who were far the gentiles thus he interacted with the syrophoenician woman the roman centurion and the tax collectors and sinners the ones that the jews said they're far off they can't be near god jesus preached to them just as he did to those who were near not only that, but through his disciples, the message of peace is preached. Isaiah 52, 17, which is quoted in Romans 10, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace. We are not only recipients of God's peace, we are now ambassadors of that peace to others. That's why it's all the more tragic when conflict erupts within the body of Christ. We are to be agents of peace, telling others of that peace. We are the people who should know, as verse 18 says, that through Him, we all have freedom to enter in one spirit to the Father. You know, our culture likes to tell us, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. But it's just not true. There are some places that no matter how positive your thoughts, you're not going to enter. You know, I can want and have all the positive vibes about getting on base, 
But unless I have a little card and they scan it and they go, have a good day, I'm not getting on base. It doesn't matter how I feel about myself. I need to be given access. You know, I may want, oh man, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to be on the sideline of a Cowboys football game. Well, I can want that. I can believe I'm going to get it. But until someone gives me a card saying access to the sideline, I'm not getting in. And yet somehow we think, well, heaven, it's just open access. Anyone goes as they want to. You know, as a culture, we think, well, I mean, everyone's basically going to go to heaven. Yeah, I mean, Hitler, Stalin, they're not going to heaven. But the rest of us, we're pretty good. We're going to heaven. And yet, though we humans say we're all going, notice what Jesus says. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. In contrast to our culture, Jesus says, It doesn't matter how you feel. It matters what the facts are about you. Are you trusting in Christ or not? The narrow gate is Jesus, and he's the only way we're reconciled to God. We're not reconciled by being a fairly decent person. I'm pretty good. We're not reconciled by doing more good deeds than bad deeds. You're not reconciled by coming to church. Coming to church often, you're not reconciled by being a church leader or giving money or being baptized or saying a prayer. Jesus is the narrow gate that leads to you and me being reconciled to God. And notice that he then, when we're reconciled to God, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to God through the one Holy Spirit to the Father. There's not one way for the Jew and another way for the Gentile. We all have one way through Christ, to God. I don't know if you've been to an amusement park in the last 15 years, but for a money standpoint, they came up with a great idea. What we're going to do is we're going to sell speed passes. And if you pay this extra money, you get a thing on your wrist, or I'm so old, that's probably not done anymore. You probably get an app or something, or probably put a chip in your body. Who knows? (laughs) Nonetheless, you get something, and you know, you see that long line that has signs, 30 minutes from this spot in line, an hour from this, hour and a half, and I always get there at the hour and a half, it seems, and wait, nope, you don't do that, you get in the speed pass line, and you, you go right up there, and us cheapos are going, (laughs) the speed pass gets you to the front. There's no speed pass with God. There's no, well, if you do this and that, if you know what, if you just start coming to church, you know what, if you start doing these things, then you got the shortcut to God. There's one pass, one way, and that is through the blood of Christ and through the one Holy Spirit. And then knowing that, that God gives us peace with Him just because of what His Son did, should then lead to us wanting to be reconciled and sharing peace with others. You know, I hope anyone who comes through those doors, we've got a couple, would feel welcome. That they don't walk in and everyone go, we don't want them here. But instead we'd say, we want everyone here and so has your peace with god compelled you to seek peace with one another well you may know that in april 1942 almost four months after the bombing of pearl harbor uh, lieutenant colonel james doolittle led a daring attack on the islands of japan they outfitted 16 b-25 bombers to go 
and bomb the islands. And this led to renewed enthusiasm and hope that we might be able to fight the Japanese. But four U.S. men were captured and endured horrific treatment from the Japanese jailers. At one point, the men were given a few books, including the Bible. And though none of them were Christians in practice, they voraciously read the Bible when it was their turn. One of the men, Jacob DeShazer, tells of when he had three weeks. And he says, I eagerly began to read its pages. Chapter after chapter gripped my heart. On June 8, 1944, the words of Romans 10.9 stood out boldly before my eyes. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, <clears throat> as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In that very moment, God gave me grace to confess my sins to him, and he forgave me and saved me for Jesus' sake. Suddenly, he writes, I discovered that God gave me new spiritual eyes, and that when I looked at the Japanese officers and guards who had starved and beaten me and my companions so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. While those who crucified Jesus had beaten him and spit upon him, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now from the depths of my heart, I too prayed for God to forgive my torturers. And Shazer would then live out that radical love for the rest of his imprisonment. And then once the war ended, DeShazer returned to the U.S. with one mission, and was to study and prepare so he could be a missionary and return to Japan. He had come to know the peace of Christ, and that impelled him to seek peace with others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way that we might be at peace with you. Lord, we try so many things. We do so many efforts, good deeds, trying to make up for all the bad we've done, and yet it's so simple and yet so hard to deny ourselves, to admit we can't do it, and trust your Son. So Lord, would you help us to know the peace that you offer, and then may we extend that to one another. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.